from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. This is Joseph Backholm, not Tony Perkins, and I am sitting in for Tony today on this lovely Friday, the first Friday in the Biden administration, and uh, 48 hours in, a little more than that. We've had a lot happen already, and today is not uh, is a uh, it's a sad day because it is also the not just the first Friday in the Biden administration. It is also the anniversary, the 48th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and we are going to talk about that at the beginning of this program uh, with Catherine Beck Johnson from Family Research Council and a, a great article, a paper that she's written. Roe must end the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn. Roe versus Wade, and we're going to talk with her about that at the beginning of the program. Stick around for the end of the program. Uh, if any of you are fans of Just Thinking, and I know you are fans of thinking, but if you are fans of the podcast, Just Thinking, we are going to have the host, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, are going to be with us because today we are broadcasting from the Founders Conference in lovely Fort Myers, Florida. And if you have not spent time in Fort Myers, Florida, or just in Florida in general in January, you should uh, make an effort to do it because it's nice. Uh, so we're going to talk with Virgil and Daryl about just thinking and uh, a whole bunch of issues that they have been uh, thinking with us about at the conference. And uh, we'll pick their brains for a few minutes at the end of the program. And between now and then, we are also going to talk to Representative Grabe, Greg Stubbe, excuse me, from the great state of Florida about legislation he's introduced um, this week in response to President Biden's executive order mandating that sports be integrated. And that's not how he refers to it, but he did uh, create an executive order, sign an executive order this week uh, requiring that uh, biological males be allowed to compete with girls at all levels of sports or else the they can face the wrath of the federal government. And Representative Stubbe has filed a legislative response to that. We will discuss that with him and more. But first, uh, to start off the program, Catherine Beck Johnson is a research fellow for legal and policy studies at Family Research Council, and she has written a great and important paper that I hope you will find uh, will be posted at TonyPerkins.com. Uh, it's Roe Must End the Legal, Historical, and Cultural Reasons to Overturn Roe versus Wade. Catherine, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we are glad to have you, and we're thankful for your, your work on this, and it is a really important day to be talking about this. And, and at, at the start of our conversation, why don't you tell us what you're thinking on the, here on the 48th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, a battle that people have been fighting literally for generations now. How should we be feeling, how should we be thinking on, on what is really a somber but important day? I mean, you're right. I think the word somber is really one of the best words for it. Today marks what has legalized the death of over 60 million children. If we think about 60 million people missing in our country today, you know, I have a six-month-old daughter. I look at her, I think, how many of her peers will she never meet? And so when we when we really think that each number in the 60 million total is a person, is a life lost, is a soul. It's really, it's somber, it's devastating, and it, it's, it's obviously past time for it to end. Well, you know I agree, and 
hundreds of millions of Americans agree uh, with you uh, in, in saying that it is past time for it to end. And, and talk to us a little bit about kind of the prospects of that. We, uh, we are going to talk a little bit later in the program with Representative Stubbe about just some of the executive orders from the, uh, from the uh, Biden administration. And, and ironically, and just to show how um, elections matter today, before Trump left office, Trump had declared today the National Sanctity of Life Day. And then we see, um, in contrast to that, a Biden administration um, releasing a statement today just hailing the, the, the greatness of abortion and how important Roe versus Wade is for us as people. What, what is the, what's the future? What, are, what should we be looking for, forward to? Is there reasons for optimism? Uh, what should we be expecting on this issue in the Biden administration and beyond? Well, like you said, elections have consequences. So if we go back to the previous election, President Trump has appointed, he appointed three Supreme Court justices to the United States, giving this a 6-3 majority. He appointed over 200 judges to the lower courts, including a third of the judges on the courts of appeals, which are the courts just below the Supreme Court. So we have a lot of optimism. You know, I wrote this paper also thinking with the appointment of Justice Barrett, Trump's latest Supreme Court nominee, what can the future of the pro-life movement look like with six Supreme Court justices appointed by Republican presidents? And how will this embolden the states to really challenge the status quo of Roe? For so long, you know, the conservatives that we've been told, you know, we just have to accept Roe's the law of the land, but we don't have to accept it. And it's time that we push it and challenge it and force the courts to answer the question again. And so, We've seen this in Alabama. We've seen this now in Arkansas, that the states are really starting to challenge, you know, through the proper vehicles, through the courts, this opinion. And we're really hopeful that with proper judges that rule according to the text and not according to their own policy preferences, that this is time for a row to be overturned. Do you think that the case that will overturn Roe is currently in the court system? That's a great question. I think it definitely has the potential to be. We're currently waiting right now to see whether or not the Supreme Court will take up Mississippi's 15-week ban. They keep pushing that down, the decision date, on whether or not they've accepted it. So I think that that's promising. Um, Another case that I think certainly has the potential to overturn Roe, it's the Prinda, what they're called, we call Prinda laws, and that is outline abortion based on Down syndrome or disabilities, sex, um, or sex or race. And so I think that that's something you're seeing lower courts really getting comfortable upholding those laws, challenging the viability standards set forth in Roe. Justice Thomas has written, uh, he wrote a concurrence talking about the eugenics roots of abortion based on these laws. So I am optimistic that one of these cases in the pipelines very well could overturn Roe. Talking to Catherine Beck Johnson, who is a research fellow for Legal and Policy Studies at Family Research Council, about a great paper she's written, Roe Must End the Legal, Historical, and Cultural Reasons to Overturn Roe versus Wade. You can find that posted at TonyPerkins.com. Now, Catherine, um, you talk about in the, in the title of your article and in the article itself, the legal, historical, and cultural reasons. And you, you argue that the Constitution does not include a right to abortion. 
Why do so many people believe that the Constitution does include a right to abortion, and why do you say that it does not? Well, there's nowhere in the text of the Constitution that abortion is mentioned. And I think people are really surprised to learn that the justices, the seven male justices in the 70s that upheld or that found a right to abortion is actually under the 14th Amendment rights of privacy. And so this is something that they decided a woman's right to have an abortion should just simply be under the rights of privacy. And it's clear the founders did not think that abortion, when they were writing the 14th Amendment, the framers were writing the 14th Amendment, that they were thinking that this included a right to abortion. So it's nowhere in the text. It's nowhere in the history of the 14th Amendment. And it is time the judges stop inserting their policy preferences when there's no text to even for it to even be grounded in. Well, I, I think that's an important point, and in, in, in honestly, in the Roe decision, the the justices who wrote that decision essentially admit as much when they say that they found the right to abortion emanating from the penumbras of the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment. And that phrase, emanating from the penumbras, is kind of a phrase that will live in infamy because it's basically saying, well, um, it's not actually there, but we kind of want it to be there, so we're going to say that it's emanating from the penumbras. And uh, it's legal, legal, legal speak for saying that we think it's kind of tangentially connected to some of these other ideas that actually are in the Constitution. Again, their way of saying it's not. Um, so, um, you, you, what's the standard? How, how, what's your, um, what's the legal argument that we go in and we make and we convince uh, a new Supreme Court that, hey, you need to, despite stare decisis and this deference that the court system generally gives to precedents, why is, what's the argument that we use to convince the Supreme Court to overturn Roe? Yeah, it's a little in the weeds, but like you said, there's stare decisis, which is a Latin term, which means that the cases get deference based or the standard gets deference. And that, you know, provides predictability in the lower courts and everything else. And actually, Planned Parenthood versus Casey outlined a new test of whether or not a case gets or a standard gets stare decisis. And that's a four factor test. And I go through it very in depth in the issue analysis. It's whether or not the prior to decision is unworkable. Clearly, the courts are below, are completely lost as to what, whether or not a law is an undue burden on a woman to obtain an abortion, whether there's related principles of law that undermine the doctrine. And I go through how states have out actually had, it's illegal, or you could be charged with double homicide if you kill a pregnant woman. And these are newer laws that have recently popped up. And that's perfectly legal. These states can do that. And those laws are not struck down under Roe. And so I talk about how if if somebody can be charged with double homicide of killing an unborn child, if they're not the mother, then this completely undermines whether or not that is a life that's worthy of protection. So I go through the four-factor test in the analysis, and those are some of the questions. I think that's a really important point to make is, is that the law is not equitable if it is not equitably applied. And in the reality of our current legal landscape is that 
for purposes of the law, a child is a person and is defended by the law if the mother wants it to be a person, but if the mother does not want it to be a person, then it is not a person. And that is, of course, completely irrational as just a matter of basic logic. And so it would, um, if you're going to seek justice as a justice system, the Supreme Court should desire to resolve that very obvious conflict, and you can resolve it in two ways. You can say, well, then we're going to eliminate fetal homicide laws because we're not going to give an unborn child personhood, or we're going to recognize that abortion uh, allows people to be killed. And there is one obviously better and obviously more consistent way to resolve that, that we hope the Supreme Court uh, will, uh, uh, the, the path that they will choose. Now, Catherine, you, you also mentioned in this that the, the facts have changed since the Roe decision, the, the facts that the Supreme Court was considering at that time. Uh, expand on that a little bit. What facts do you think have changed since 1973 that, that could lead to a favorable outcome? Well, science has significantly progressed since 1973. We now have even more scientific proof that shows that life does begin at conception. A baby's heartbeat starts to beat at six weeks. You know, we now have the science to know that these children are humans at at this conception. That's exactly right. And, and, And those facts are you know, we're going to follow the science, right? We've been told for so long to follow the science. This is one case right. in which the science leads us in the right direction. It leads us in the direction of a life that's important to remember on this anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And do pray again for the end of abortion. Catherine Beck Johnson, thank you for joining us today. And folks, you can find her paper, again, The Legal, Historical, Cultural Reasons to Overturn Roe versus Wade at TonyPerkins.com. Stay tuned. On the other side, we are going to be talking with Congressman Greg Stubbe about his bill to uh, protect women's sports and a couple of other issues as well. Be right back. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, 
FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. policy to support women's and girls' sexual and reproductive health and reproductive rights in the United States as well as globally. To that end, President Biden will be revoking the Mexico City policy in the coming days as part of his broader commitment to protect women's health and advance gender equality at home and around the world. That is the now familiar voice of the good Dr. Fauci announcing on behalf of the Biden administration their plans to revoke the Mexico City policy. Uh, I am Joseph Backel, sitting in for Tony Perkins today and here to discuss the revocation of the Mexico City policy, among other things, is U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe from the 17th District in Florida. Representative Stubbe, thank you so much for taking a moment to come be with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we, we are thankful for you and everything that you do on behalf of, of, of the right in Washington, D.C., and I don't mean that in a political sense, but in, in a good and bad sense. But what's your reaction to uh, the, the statement from, from Dr. Fauci as well as the Biden administration's prioritization of, uh, revoke, to re- revoke the Mexico City policy? Well, we're just going the complete opposite direction that our country should be going, the, the direction that 74 million Americans wanted us to go, uh, the direction we were going for the last four years. And I tell you, I just left a part of my district in Punta Gorda, and people there are upset. They are frustrated. And for Biden to come in and just do all of this by executive order, I think is also frustrating because then members of Congress, now I know we have a Democratic-led House right now, but narrowly, she only has five votes to lose. And I would think on some of these bigger issues I would think that those votes would be very, very tight. So it's also frustrating to see them do things like this just by executive order, the things they're doing at the border wall, the things they're doing, they're going to do on immigration, the things they're going to do on DACA. The list goes on and on. I could keep talking about all of the things they're doing to reverse 
the positive directions we've made in our country over the last four years. But it's as a member of Congress, it is very frustrating because there is not much that a single member of Congress can do to fight against all of this um, violent move to the left that you are seeing in our country right now. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the sad part is much of this is not really that surprising, and, and it was part of what was campaigned on is an expectation that the Biden administration would really return us to the Obama administration, and frustration with the Obama administration is what gave us the Trump administration. And so we are seeing you know something of a whiplash from your seat in Congress. I mean, in the House, the, Republican, uh, the Republicans narrowed the majority significantly. What is the, what's the mood? Um, among your colleagues, uh, what are you feeling? What's the what's the plan for the next couple of years? Well, the plan for the next couple of years is to do everything that we can to fight to win five seats to take the the majority of the U.S. House back. I mean, I think that's the focus. But what's what's challenging is that two years down the road, what are we going to do between now and then? I, I'll tell you, right. it's going to be very difficult for them to get votes on the floor. I mean, they had to fly in two Democratic members who had COVID, who we know had COVID, they had to fly those two members in in order for Speaker Pelosi to get the 218 votes to become Speaker. So I, I just don't think it's going to be as easy as they think it's going to be to pass big, controversial packages on the floor. And um, that's why I think they're trying to do as much as they can through executive order. But uh, And hopefully, and I, I will say, it is somewhat reassuring that we do hopefully have a 5-4 conservative court, that if they they overstep on a constitutional issue, that at least we have them as a backstop against some of these horrible executive orders that the Biden administration is going to set forth. Well, there's a lot of us that agree with you on that. And, and if we are going to uh, experience what, what I think of in many ways as the ninth year of the Obama administration, the makeover that uh, President Trump did of the judiciary, I think should give us some hope because we know and that's kind of where our hope has to be at this point, I think, uh, as a matter of policy, um, because uh, I, I don't. I'm not really surprised at the direction that the the Biden administration has taken, and 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 as I know you know today is the 48th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and and we're kind of we're we're contemplating that. What does it mean? What does it mean for what's been and and where we're going in the future? And the White House released a statement today, and I want to read a portion of this to you in light of the comments that you've already made, and just get your reaction to to what the White House had to say about Roe versus Wade. And they said that in the last four years, reproductive health, including the right to choose, has been under relentless and extreme attack. We are deeply committed to making sure everyone has access to care including reproductive health care, regardless of income, race, zip code, health insurance status, or immigration status. That's what uh, President Biden had to say about Roe versus Wade today. What's your reaction to that? In other words, we're going to use taxpayer dollars to allow even minors without parental um, approval to get abortions in our country. And this attack they talk about on women's reproductive rights is an attack on the most vulnerable in our society, and that is unborn children. And in some cases, we heard over the years, the last couple of years, like the Virginia governor talk about, after a child is born, making them comfortable and then euthanizing them. I mean, that's how far to the left we are. And I'm just very proud to be from a state like Florida, 
where we have a conservative-led legislature. And I hope that issues like Roe v. Wade, through issues that I fought for when I was in the state legislature and the state House and state Senate, that we got overturned on by the court, like parental consent for abortions, parental notification for abortions. Well, that more liberal-leaning state court is now gone, and we have a conservative-leaning court here in Florida. And I hope those cases from good states like Florida percolate up to the U.S. Supreme Court and we have more conservative judges now that can look at some of these cases. At least that's the one glimmer of hope that I'm looking at right now, other than that slim majority in the House. Uh, we agree with you on that. And Representative Stubbe, we're going to hopefully bring you back after the break because I do want to talk about legislation that you have just introduced, uh, reintroducing the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act. I want to talk about why that is important, uh, what another executive order from President Biden this week that made that necessary, and uh, looking forward to talking to you about that, where that's going to go as well. Because, uh, folks, there is um, everything that we talked about for, uh, you know, six, seven, eight months of this campaign of what would happen in a Democratic convention. Administration, all of our of our, our of our worst dreams are being uh, realized very quickly. So come back uh, and, and right after the break with Representative Greg Stubbe, we'll talk about that and more. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I'd definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today, and we are so glad that you've joined us. And we are uh, 
particularly glad to be joined by Representative Greg Stubbe from the great state of Florida. And I say that sitting here in the great state of Florida today, uh, part of the Founders Conference in Fort Myers. So, Representative Stubbe, we're a little south of you, but I will say just being here, not only is it a lovely place to be in January, but uh, you can kind of smell the freedom in Florida. People are eating inside and outside, and, and, and life actually feels kind of normal. So uh, your appreciation for Florida that you were expressing is appreciated by many visitors uh, today as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, welcome to freedom. It's, it's much different than Washington, D.C., I assure you. Yeah, and, and we are enjoying it. To be sure. Now, um, another executive action from uh, President Biden this week had to do with uh, sports and gender. And tell us a little bit about what happened and what you've done in response. Well, what they're trying to do is make it legal through Title IX and through colleges that biological men can compete against biological women in women's sports. This is an issue I worked on uh, about a year last year in the 116th Congress. We refiled our bill that would actually prevent biological men from competing with biological women in women's sports. You would think today, in today's world, that this isn't something you would actually have to try to pass a bill on. It would kind of be commonsensical. And what's interesting is you have even people from the far left, like Maria Navratilova, and others who have been competitive in women's sports who are saying this is a really bad idea to let biological men who quote-unquote today identify as a woman competing in women's sports for obvious reasons. I'm not even going to get into the physical differences between women and men and all of the things that come with being able to compete in sports, but I can't see how this can be an issue that the majority of Americans, I don't care what your party affiliation is, even if you're a suburban Democratic mom whose daughter is a high school senior competing for a track scholarship, I'm pretty sure that mom doesn't want her daughter competing for that track scholarship, competing against a biological male to get that scholarship to college. And, and I, would, I would think that this would be an issue that would transcend party lines and kind of be a, an issue that, 90% of Americans could agree upon, but obviously this is something that the Biden administration feels like they need to put a flag down on and a marker on to say this is where we are, and I just don't, I just can't believe for the life of me that's where the majority of Americans are on this issue. Well, I'm inclined to agree with you, though it was not included in our founding documents. I think the fact that men and women are uh, physically and inalterably different is one of the truths that most people do hold as self-evident. But uh, for whatever reason, we are now we are now debating this. Now, you talked about the fact that you would like to think that this is a bipartisan issue where people across the political spectrum um, can agree that men and women are different and it's okay to recognize recognize that. And I think among the pu the public, that's true. Do you see any evidence of that in Congress? Are there, is there anybody across the aisle who's reaching across the aisle to say, yeah, we really should make sure that, that women's sports remain for biological women? Well, that's what's been so frustrating about this and other issues is that even moderate Democrats are so afraid of the cancel culture, woke left, the progressive left, that they don't even want to come out on issues like this because they're afraid of being denounced. 
The challenge for those moderate Democrats is they're in and, and will be in very difficult districts in 2022. Uh, traditionally, the party in the White House loses about 25 seats in Congress. We only need to pick up five to take the majority back. And I just think this is an issue, like I said, that transcends party lines. Most people would agree that it doesn't make sense to have biological men competing with biological women in college sports. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that at some point there'll be a Democrat that's willing to join with me in this effort. At this mm-hmm. point, it hasn't happened. Nobody, I don't believe there was any Democrats that voted for it when I did the motion to recommit on the floor this last time around. If there was, there was only a few. But now with only a five-member majority that the Democrats have in the House, if this is a vote that would come up on the floor, I think it would be very, very difficult for some of those Democratic members in those tough districts. Now, you refer to these moderate Democrats, and, and from a lot of people's perspective, just kind of observing the national debate remotely, they, they, the, the oxygen gets sucked out of the room by AOC and, and other people who would not be considered moderate. How big is that constituency, in your view, of, of, of people in the Democratic caucus in the House who, at their core, are probably moderate, even though politically they're pushed left? How many people are we talking about? Well, in the last election cycle, so in 2016, before the 2020 election, there was six, there was 30 districts that actually had Democrats in them that Trump won in 2016. Uh, I don't know what that number is this cycle, but I would imagine it's pretty, pretty similar. But we won 12 of those seats. We only need now to take five to win the majority back. So you're still probably looking at about 20 seats throughout the country that Republicans either are winning by registration or that the president wanted 20 that we can possibly take back in 2022. Well, Representative Greg Stubbe, we really are thankful to you for your efforts. As quickly as this all goes, I actually think 2022 is going to be here before we know it. And I think we're going to all pray that it gets here before we know it and that the uh, the damage is minimized. And we are counting on people like you, and we are thankful for people like you who are there to minimize the damage. And we are thankful for you uh, for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. After the break, come on back. We're going to be with Daryl Henderson and Virgil Walker from the Just Thinking podcast. It's going to be a great conversation on CRT, Critical Race Theory. Stay with us. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, 
Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. We're about to send you into your weekend. This is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. And this is a great way to send you into the weekend. I uh, mentioned earlier in the program that uh, we are on location here in Fort Myers, Florida for the Founders Conference. And two of the uh, great speakers that we have a chance to uh, to be with this weekend are the hosts of a great podcast as well called Just Thinking, and I know many of our audience, many of you are familiar with that. The hosts of that, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, are with me in studio, gentlemen. Hey, hey, Thanks good afternoon. Us. Thank yeah. you. Glad to be Thanks here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. For well, we are really glad that you are here. Uh, tell us a little, you know. Why'd you come? What are you hoping to communicate to people? Yeah. Well, uh, big, the big invitation for us to be here was expressed to us from the folks at Founders. Uh, they know what we stand for and about. We, we, our podcast speaks a lot to issues of the culture, uh, all of it done through the lens of a biblical worldview, which I know is important for your listeners. And uh, so we, we, we love doing that. It's an opportunity to share what we do, uh, opening up the Word of God and really unpacking and examining what's happening in culture uh, and, 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 again, doing so through a biblical lens. Awesome. And, and we're going to, because we have a compressed amount of time sure. here, in, 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 you know, before the end of the day here, um, I want to get into this real quick, mm-hmm. and I want you to... Um, promote the stuff that you're doing. You guys do such good work and you go to such great depth in helping people understand biblically Mm -hmm. what scripture has to say. And in your most recent episode Mm -hmm. was on unity. Yes. Uh, This has been a big week for our country Mm -hmm. and we've heard a lot about unity and we, we know that there has been division and there are calls for unity basically from everyone, right? We would all like unity. Right. What does that mean? How should we be thinking about it? Should, does this mean that we should all just like accept what comes because we're going to get unity? Yeah, so um, as you alluded to, our Just Thinking podcast is a uh, long-form podcast where we tackle uh, social, political, theological, and cultural issues through a biblical worldview. 
as Virgil alluded to earlier, in our most recent episode, episode number 106, we titled it A Biblical Exposition of Unity, and we tackled that issue of unity by request from a lot of our listeners because going into the election, there were, a, and even after the election, there were a lot of calls for unities, unity rather from evangelicals, uh, from all political persuasions. But what Virgil and I were questioning in that is that, well, we need to set some context around what, actually, what type of unity are we talking about here? Uh, as Virgil and I represent a Christian podcast, we represent a biblical worldview. And as Christians, we need to understand that unity is not some open-ended blank check. There is context around that that we need to understand and have as Christians, whereby there is a line to be drawn here. Unity is not a boundaryless uh, uh, idea. It is not a boundaryless philosophy. There are... Uh, 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 principles and precepts, um, laws even, that as God's people, we need to take into consideration as we talk about unifying with a world and a culture that in many ways is against what Scripture teaches. Uh, So unity, we just can't fall back and say, yeah, that's a good idea. We need to be able to stop and as followers of Christ ask ourselves, well, what type of unity are you talking about? And in our episode on Uh, unity that we did we took the time to walk our listeners through three different types of unity that the scripture talks about the scripture uses unity as a numerical term as for instance as one body being one it also uses the word unity as something that holds a thing together but most of the emphasis of biblical unity is upon the in the context rather of having agreement or concurrence about Mm -hmm. something and when you look at unity in that regard up against the administration that was just inaugurated there are infinite uh, issues and uh, philosophies and ideologies that, as Christians, we cannot unify with. And I think that's a really important point. You know, I, I, when you take sides in a war, which you do when you give your life to Jesus, when that's you right. take sides in mm-hmm. a war, that means you have enemies, right? That's right? You have allies, but you also have enemies. Right. Enemies, and and I think you know, Romans twelve somewhere, I believe. So far as it is up to you, be at peace with yes, all men. Right. Yes. And there's, there's an assumption in there. Right. So right. far as it is up to you. Sometimes it is not up to you. Right. right? Yes. And we know that Jesus was not unified with everybody right. up to the point of the cross, right? Right. right. They would have, wouldn't have killed him otherwise. Right. One of the great services that you guys do is defining the terms. Because mm-hmm. in, in, in those of us who have debate backgrounds, they always say, who, who defines the terms wins the debate. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. We are in massive cultural debates. You guys do a really good job of defining the terms mm-hmm. so we understand because we often use the same words but we have different dictionaries yes absolutely. and let's talk about that briefly mm-hmm. here um some of the terms that we use justice mm-hmm. equity mm-hmm. racism mm-hmm. What, what what do these terms mean right. how should we as christians think about a term like racism right what is that right. I mean, everybody says racism is bad right. but then there's it's, it's lobbed around as accusations all the time what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, we've got to look at when we're talking about what the way in which culture now uses language. What they're doing is they're, they're deconstructing language. And the purpose behind the deconstruction of language is to re- reconstruct a different worldview in its place. And so it's incredibly important to first understand what is at the root of this deconstruction of language. You saw that with the Obergefell decision, right? right, where there was a redefining of what is marriage. And so the same thing is happening in this in this new era where critical race theory abounds, where, where people are appealing to things like social 
justice, right? We, we, know, we know what justice is, but now we have this new terminology called social justice. And now everything that we encounter and come into contact with is an issue of justice. You, know, you have reproductive justice. There's all kinds of ideas because the buzzword has, 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 has triggered culture to to think that whatever whatever they're attaching to justice is is either problematic or or needs to be evaluated or reevaluated so when when you look at things like racism or sexism and the, the isms that are out there uh, one of the things we've got to do from a standpoint of of of, of believers bible believing believers is go back to scripture and understand what the scripture says not only understand what it says but what it means by what it says and we have to make sure that we're defining terms and terminology on the basis of what scripture says about us whether that's an issue of who man is whether that's an issue of of the nature of man the sinfulness of mankind we have to make sure that we're anchored in the text of scripture when we use terms like racism for example just to briefly touch on that i know i know we're short on time i don't want to run long but i I do want to say with regard to the issue of race and racism we've got to understand that the bible knows nothing of race says of people the bible knows of one human race we're all created in the very image of god genesis 1 isn't that racist though all by itself to say that I've heard that. Yeah. I'm told that saying we're all the human race, that's racist. Yeah. I, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing that your listeners, folks have got to understand. I don't care what people think about me anchoring truth according to Scripture. We can't care. We have to go back to the way in which God created the human condition and the world order and, be, and believe it says what it says and it means what it says. Right by what it says we have to not be what happens oftentimes and and i'll and i'll I'll turn it back over to you is we're too concerned about labels that that are lobbed at us uh and so what we do when we hear that's racist we kowtow and capitulate and and give up ground we can't do that yeah i i think that's a good point because i think these terms that have kind of cultural meaning we think we know what they mean like we're supposed to be anti-racist, we're supposed to dislike discrimination. So anytime somebody says that's discrimination, sure. our brains shut off, and we know we're supposed to oppose it because sure. it's discrimination, even if it's just you know, exercising good judgment in the course of life, which yeah. keeps us all alive, right? And so not defining the terms has us emotionally captive right. to, you know, it, it's it's. Um, you know, it's a form of kind of manipulation. It absolutely yeah. is manipulation. It's not even a form of. Yeah. It is manipulation. It's emotional manipulation. The, the, the more you're triggered by a particular issue, the more concerned you are, and the, and the easier it is for them to, to use a word like you're a racist and for you to get triggered by that, the, 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 they're more able yeah. to control yeah. you. And you cannot allow them to leverage that yeah. kind of control over you. You just can't do it. Yeah. yeah, what we have to do, just to sort of build on what Virgil just said, what we have to do as Bible-believing Christians is to know the Word of God so well so that when you hear sociocultural terms like race, racist, racism, that you can take that language and then translate it into biblical vernacular. And I don't mean to sound simplistic when I say this, but what the culture says is racism or some other sort of attitudinal uh, label that it attaches to that, the Bible simply calls love or hate. The Bible is that simple. The Bible speaks in terms of me having either one of two attitudes towards any individual. I either love that person or I hate that person. It's pretty much that simple. We know that from 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where John writes, If any brother says he loves God yet hates his brother, yeah. 
you know the word of, the, the spirit of God doesn't reside in that person. That's a, that's a that's a that's a, a, a logical fallacy according to Scripture that you cannot yeah. say you love God and hate your brother. So all these isms and other suffixes that the culture is adding to these words are nonsensical and irre irrelevant uh, as far as Scripture is concerned. As far as the, the Lord is concerned, there's either love or hate. There's one or the other. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, this, this, these issues of race, justice, these debates the church used to have with the culture. Right. Now the church is having these debates with itself. Right. Why do you think, at least it's my impression, that there is, there is disagreement within the church where there was once more agreement about how we thought about these issues? Why do you think something like critical race theory has made inroads in the church in the way that it has? Why are we now debating these things? Well, the, the reality is that the, the big evangelicalism, or a big Eva is what, 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 how, we, how we entitle it, has been about pragmatism for so long. They have been about what works in culture. The effort has been how can we be more relevant. They've appealed to let's find the guy who looks the part, who has the skinny jeans, who wears the hair in a specific way, who can be up on a platform giving a 25-minute TED Talk. That's going to be our pastor. And they've abandoned true theology, biblical theology, and what the Word of God says. There's no more exegetical preaching. There's no more expositional preaching, word by word, book by book, building upon theology. We don't see that anymore. And because that's absent, we've adopted what the culture has said is the ideas that we need to adopt. That was good. Daryl, you have anything to add? Yeah, just, just to add real quick, I would say that the, uh, the, the church as a whole, they've forgotten the fact that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. See, there's a lot of kingdom building going on in the church right there. And what I mean by that, they're trying to create kingdoms here on earth when Jesus was never about that. Right. So we need to be about the business of eternity and not temporal issues that are going to burn away one day. That's good. And, and again, um, we're talking to uh, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker from the Just Thinking podcast. And I hope that you will uh, go wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. This is just a uh, an hors d'oeuvre. It's, it's already over, bro? Just, no, it's not quite. Okay. I got another one for right. you. But I'm just, I'm just making sure people get, because they're going to want more when okay. we're done here. Got you, got and you. they need to know. I got to make sure they know where they okay. can get more. And you can get a lot more, like two and a half hours an episode more at Just Thinking. But, guys, it's end of the week. People are driving home. It's been a rough week for a lot of Americans. Give us some hope. What's God doing? What are you encouraged by? Um, how's God moving in your life? What are you seeing? Where's, where should we have our eyes? Yeah, I'm encouraged by the fact that God is still sovereign over everything that happens, in, not only in this world, but his, in his universe. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to go back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Okay? Mm -hmm. In the beginning, God. Nothing happens ex nihilo. Nothing uh, happens out of nothing. Okay? God is still sovereign. He is still providential in everything that happens in his world. And we need to remember that this is, just like the hymn says, this is my father's world. We need to remember that. So I would encourage your listeners to be hopeful, be encouraged that you serve a God who is sovereign over everything that occurs, uh, occurs rather in his world. We know this from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. It says that the eyes of the Lord look about seeing both the evil and the good. There is nothing that escapes the notice of our omniscient God. I would only add to that simply as, as you guys get ready to wrap things up is that not only is God sovereign, but he's given us a message to reconcile each one of us unto himself and, and each of us to one another. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good. We've got a couple more minutes here. And so 
it's a great answer to what, what should we be thinking about this? And the sovereignty of God is comforting, right? Mm-hmm. It is comforting when the world seems to be falling apart and, uh, and, and God is not orchestrating things in the way we would orchestrate things if we were God. Mm-hmm. But what should we be doing? I mean, we, you know, we want to have hope, right? And we want to have our eyes on eternity. And, and so our soul is at rest. But we're still here. We're alive. So God has things for us still to be doing. If we're in, in, in the world that we're in here in, in 2021, what should we be doing? What are we going to wake up on Monday? Give us the weekend, right? Okay. What are we going to wake up on Monday? What's our purpose? What should we be doing? Yeah, I would say to quote the Westminster Catechism, you know, the, the, the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So when you wake up on Monday morning, if you wake up on Monday morning, because, again, God is sovereign over that as well. Uh, you want to wake up knowing that you have a purpose to glorify God in whatever it is you're doing. Circumstances and situations around you in the world, especially those that may make us a little bit uh, de- depressed, anxious, uh, or, 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 or a little bit angst-ridden, uh, understand that this is exactly what you're supposed to see in a sinful world that is waiting to be redeemed by Christ. Th- this world is, is sinful by nature, the creation itself, and those of us who live in it. So just understand that that God has a plan that uh, ultimately his plan is going to be fulfilled where this this world, uh, according to Second Peter 3.13, is going to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth one day. That's awesome. Virgil, 30 I, seconds. What should we be doing? Well, I, again, I, I go back to the, the, the Great Commission. Uh, we have a responsibility as believers in Christ to preach the gospel. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey Everything that I've commanded, we have a responsibility. We've been, we are, we are ministers of of reconciliation. That's a message we we must proclaim. Amen. And only thing I'll add to that is the Great Commission: Don't go make believers, go make disciples. Because disciples are what change the world. Even. The demons believe and they tremble. So we had to go make disciples. So, gentlemen, again, thank you for being here this weekend. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us uh, today. Just thinking for all of you out there, go find that podcast. You do want to listen to it. It's going to make your life better. And thank you all for joining us. Have a great God-ordained, God-blessed weekend. Thanks, Chelsea. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.